HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning. And yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry. Because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music has been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Dinah Trout, who is the proprietess of Health Aid Kombucha. <laughs> and we're going to talk about a lot of things, what kombucha is, how it's good for your microbial gut health. But first, we're going to talk about Saudi Arabia, Calgary, Washington, D.C., <laughs> Boston, and Los Angeles, because it was quite a tour. Yeah. Uh, around the world that got you to this place of being the kombucha queen. So <laughs> talk to me about, one, being born and growing up in Saudi Arabia and, and moving to Calgary and then the rest of the locations around the States. Sure. Um, well, just a quick correction. I was born in Saudi Arabia, but I left when I was three. So I don't remember much there. Not the formative years. Yeah. But, but why, why there in the first place? My... So my parents are happily married and my dad uh, had opportunities for work and the family always traveled with him to those. So there was an opportunity in Saudi Arabia for six years for them to live. And um, I believe at that time they were trying to like spark the economy out there. So they invited all Canadian, European and American families to send parts of their business or their whole business there. So my dad worked for like a telecom satellite communications business business. 
they sent a bunch of their employees there. So we lived on like a compound with other uh, Americans, Europeans, and Canadians. And we had like a pretty awesome life in the middle of Jeddah alongside the Red Sea. And I have no memory of it, although my older sisters do. And it was pretty awesome. Like my mom said that for each, so not only did they pay your rent, the country of Saudi Arabia, but they also gave you a a caretaker, like a nanny per kid. So my mom showed up (laughs) with three children, right? And so she had three nannies full time just helping her with childcare. She said it was quite, quite amazing. Then moved to Calgary, Washington, D.C. But it was a whole bunch of years in Boston while at school that you started getting interested in, you know, health and nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the interest started early on. My my mom was a cook. She made incredible, from scratch, whole healthy food my whole life for breakfast, lunch, and dinners. Like, there's no question that's where this all started. Um, but you're right that in Boston, when I went to school for nutrition, that's where I really fell in love with real food and sort of honed in on my philosophy about health overall which was different, I think, than most of the nutrition students, for the most part. So it wasn't a specific food that you had in greater Massachusetts that led you to this. It was actually a discipline that you were studying. It was. I just fell in love with food, like healing with it, um, learning about it. I think many of the people I was in school with were really interested in the scientific capability and impact of each molecule. I was less so interested in that. I was more intrigued by like the whole the holistic nature of it and like the impact it could have on one's health. And in the end, I think I was really compelled by fermented foods because when I would give it to my guinea pigs, AKA my friends, family, boyfriends, all those people. Uh, At first I thought you were actually giving it to (laughs) guinea pigs as test subjects. No, (laughs) guinea humans. Okay. Um, I would see that like almost without a doubt, every time people would come back and say that it helped their stomachs. Like, I saw that all the time. So I was kind of like, wow, there's real power to these fermented foods. But it wasn't just kombucha I was into. I made kefir, sauerkraut, uh, kimchi, um, anything you could really ferment. Like, you'd come to my house and I'd have things sprouting on the counter kind of, <laughs> kind of thing. This personal philosophy that health is not only determined by science, but how you connect it back to happiness is, is very different than I've heard a lot of people talk about fermented foods. What, what is that definition of happiness and how can you actually see it uh, transcend? Um, I don't have a definition for happiness. I think I'm, if I did, I might disappear <laughs> <laughs> like in nirvana. Um, but, but what I mean by having a philosophy where health, to me, health, I care about the health it takes to be happy. And what I mean by that is I don't think there's a specific number of sugar that you are supposed to eat or that there's a certain number of calories that Amelia, you know, is supposed to eat. I think in the end it's about um, your individual reaction and response to that food. And if it makes you feel good today, tomorrow, and five days from now, it's probably good for you. And I think that using that as a sort of like compass as you approach food, instead of looking at rearview mirrors, scientific data only to suggest what you should be eating, I think you're in actually a much better place to just look at, sort of follow your gut and look at your own 
intuition and say, does this make me feel good? Do I like this? Do I like how I respond to this? So that's what I mean more by that. It, it was ve- That's very different than how I ate in college. And I went to school in Boston as well. Okay. Uh, Where'd you go? I, <laughs> it's a long okay, story. Okay, okay, okay. Many, another, five another different podcast. schools. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I remember eating, you know, late night pizza, honest taquerio super chicken burritos. Those were my favorite things. And it, you've <laughs> talked about, you know, kefir sauerkraut, these things fermenting on your counter. What were the meals that you had in college? Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, I went, when I say school, I meant grad school. So there's a difference. When I was an undergrad, you know, we, we don't have to talk about Domino's <laughs> pizza all the way. So it was really in grad school that I fell in love with like the real food part because that's what I was studying. Um, but the types of food I ate in grad school, oh my gosh. I think anybody who knew me in grad school, would be like Dinah's was the place to go to dinner because I would just throw down. I got into $40,000 of credit card debt as a, as a result of grad school. I would make like, I would make like four day paella and invite all my friends over. I just like, I just loved food. Um, international food, all kinds of food that took time to, for the sauces to like marinate and create. I was into, I guess, making vinegars, although I didn't know until 10 minutes ago what the <laughs> definition of a vinegar was. I would cook with kombucha, um, you know, all kinds of different cuisines, but delicious ones, like not ones at all that would make you squirm. I think this informs the way that you make your kombucha, not only in in the the carefulness and patience you have behind the product, but also the flavors and then the palate that you create within a bottle. And, you know, you moved to Los Angeles after graduate school for corporate America. Well, actually, (laughs) I moved for the weather. First, without a job, yeah, and then I was like, I need money for this. Yes, for this weather. But you still have this interest in holistic medicine and and real food. Yes. When did you separate yourself from corporate America, LA, and turn yourself into who you are now? It took about five years um, for me to separate. I was working in corporate America for five, and then I quit my job and started Health Aid, not alone with my best friend Vanessa, who I was working with, by the way, in corporate America. And we were both feeling equally unfulfilled. And it wasn't like a switch. That feeling was growing over the five years. Like it, you know. And then also I started it with my husband, Justin, who is a musician. That, we, we can talk about the music <laughs> aspect because I, I've been reading recently about how, uh, you know, a lot of punk bands and uh, like hardcore bands started out vegan. Or there, there were all these journals that they used to trade about cooking vegan cuisine because when they were on tour, it's the hardest thing to find. Um, so I think alternative foods, not to call kombucha that, but things that were outside of the regular market are so well accepted in the arts, mm-hmm. not so much in corporate America. Mm-hmm. But it, did you find that to be true? Did you get the support from your husband, not only you know, uh, you know, helping you actually build this business, but through the music friends as, as, as testers and as guinea pigs? I think so. There's no question that the creative, the creative people are just naturally going to be more accepting to this. As it's evolved over the last six years of being in this business, though, um, that corporate side has been like way more engaged. And I think that pendulum is just swinging mm-hmm. way more. But you're absolutely right that six years ago... It was a different story. When I met Justin, uh, he was about, so he's still 6'1", as he always has been. But then he was like 120 pounds. So he was like that. He had that like heroin look going on, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And um, 
and it wasn't because he was enjoying heroin. It was because he was having a serious medical problem with his digestive system and like couldn't get things down. So one of the things we bonded on was through food, I was able to heal him. And it was actually through really kombucha. So again, he was one of my guinea pigs that I talked about in the beginning that I was able to see the power of fermented foods and it wasn't just kombucha. Um, but then he introduced it to his bandmates. The band was called Tony Reeks of the Grave. <laughs> Perfect advocate for kombucha, by the way. Yeah. The best <laughs> punk band that never was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, you're right. We'll define kombucha after the break, but I want to parlay this into the fact that you started this company not as a potable, not as a drink, but initially it was a hair care product. That's right. So, I mean, we, we've talked about microbial gut health, but let's talk about uh, <laughs> let's talk about hair health. Yeah. Okay, so what happened was... We fast forward, we made kombucha, we drank it, yay, God. Okay, now five years later, we're all in corporate America. Justin's trying to make it as a musician. We're all feeling unfulfilled and not paying the bills. So we start an entrepreneur club, and we want to talk about what are problems in the world we want to solve. They weren't specifically or necessarily health-related ones. Um, we came all up with all kinds of ideas. We only had 600 bucks. So one day, Justin comes to the table, to the entrepreneur club, and he says, I just went to my hairdresser and I'm losing my hair. She told me I'm balding and it's my last hurrah. And he was very disappointed by this because he's 28 and, you know, he felt that was too young to lose his hair. So he's really motivated to protect that asset. And uh, we were all very excited to start something. So we started researching what would regrow hair. And lo and behold, through our research, while sipping on my kombucha, we found that in parts of the world, they use the SCOBY, which is the culture used to ferment kombucha or ferment tea to make kombucha, is used in parts of the world as a mask. It's like a head mask. And you put it on your head for like 10 minutes a week or whatever, and it will like integrate, I don't know, increase the integrity of the cells. Who knows what the biochemistry is? But there was enough anecdotal evidence for this that we were kind of like, maybe there's something here and there are no products on the market yet with kombucha in them for hair care. So because I knew how to make kombucha quite well, and I knew how to grow these scobies, we decided to set on a mission to grow the scobies, to put on Justin's head, to ultimately protect his hair from being lost. We didn't actually care about the liquid, just the scoby. So we would give the liquid away in brown, unlabeled bottles and keep the scobies. Fast forward, there's a little story, but we ended up in a farmer's market selling the kombucha. <laughs> and how's the hair? You know, Justin has actually not lost a lot of hair since. And who knows if that's from drinking kombucha. We never actually ended up using it as a mask. <laughs> it's still an opportunity. Yeah. I've, I feel like it's the next product I have to come up with because I keep telling the story. And I'm like, it's obviously the next innovation we have to make. Um, so I really don't know if, if a mask would have helped because we ended up pivoting for good reason to sell the liquid because people kept telling us basically how awesome it was. Um, so who knows? But his hair's good. His <laughs> well, hair's good. You know, science aside, it seems like it's made you happy. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. 
With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named World Champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Dinah Trout of Healthy Kombucha. Hey. And, you know, we, we didn't really define what kombucha was right before the break. So l- let's do that. What exactly is it? Kombucha is fermented tea. It's naturally rich in probiotics and healthy acids. And it's made with four simple ingredients, three of which you know, one is sort of like the mystical one. So the three that you know are sugar, tea, and water. You basically make sweet tea. And then the mystical ingredient, the fourth ingredient, also known as the VIP ingredient, it's called a SCOBY. And it stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. And it's sort of like a cellulose matrix, like a pancake, that holds all the probiotics. And when you put all those four ingredients together, the probiotics essentially eat the sugar in the sweet tea and transform the liquid from tea to a beverage that has not only those probiotics in it from the SCOBY, but also has several different types of acids, acetic, malic, tartaric, gluconic, and more, that basically create a liquid that's very different than tea, and it's like a vinegary, bubbly, a little bit sweet, a little bit sour, refreshing beverage. I'm going to open my bottle and try not to oh, yeah. spray it all over myself. No, no, it won't. It's a really, it's new. It's fresh. Yeah. What he's opening right now. Please, yes. Is the jalapeno kiwi cucumber kombucha. It's my favorite new flavor. We just launched it today all over New York. Oh, yes. There it is. There's such a worry these days about kombuchas blowing up on people. Why that fear? Well, when you make real kombucha, it is alive throughout the entire lifespan of the product. So... There is some portion of it that's uncontrollable. And if I was to take, and you even saw me open up my ginger lemon and it was like real kind of nice and bubbly, that's because it was an older kombucha. It probably was not refrigerated the entire lifespan. It was agitated a lot. So again, because we don't pasteurize it, it's the yeasts are going to create more bubbles over time. So you, it is sort of like you never know what you're going to get until you get your own personal customized bottle. <laughs> yeah, that, we were talking off air about how crazy that is to start a business about something so volatile, <laughs> something that takes such a long time to actually make. Uh, when you started in 2012, uh, there was already kombucha on the market. So then what did you do to make yours different? So, well, again, we didn't go out to start kombucha. We went out to start a hair loss company. (laughs) So the reason we ended up selling kombucha is a friend of ours had an opening at the farmer's market, and we didn't yet have the mask ready for the head. But we had several tens of cases, like 60 cases of unlabeled kombucha. The reason we had that is that every time you brew a batch of kombucha, you make a scoby. So in order to make a scoby, we had to brew a batch of kombucha. So we had all this kombucha. So when she called us and said, hey, you've got a spot at the Brentwood Farmer's Market, come on in, it's next weekend. And we didn't have our 
mask ready, but we did have 60, 60 cases of kombucha. That's when we were like, okay, we'll sell this kombucha and we'll figure it out. So in the beginning, I think we all thought there's no way we could fight the Goliath of the kombucha brands that are already out there. I mean, they're already sold at gas stations. So there's no way we could beat that with $600. That said, because it was an opportunity and we we're go-getters and you know we didn't have a ton of money, we did it. And what we found in that farmer's market is that people loved our kombucha. And over those conversations, week after week, we learned why. And it was clear that there was a niche out there. There was a market for a better tasting and higher quality kombucha. So considering how we made it in two and a half glass jars, flavoring it only with cold pressed juice from organic produce we bought in the farms, uh, we have two and a half gallon glass jars. Considering all of that, we kind of were like, wait, let's just not change any of that and be the premium kombucha. So after the summer, because we sold out like consistently and grew like crazy, it really was an explosive summer. It would have been like, like it was every sign from the universe at every angle telling us this is what you have to do. Like ditch the hair loss thing, (laughs) go with the kombucha thing. And so we did. um, And we just made sure we stayed very close to that niche, which was we are the best tasting and highest quality kombucha you can buy. We won't compromise on things like the fact that we fermented in glass jars, the fact that we use two and a half gallon vessels, the fact that we flavor it with cold pressed juice. And even six years Later, today, like what you're drinking today is absolutely the same thing. Two and a half gallon glass jars, super small, um, all glass, so no plastic or metal leaching, which in vinegars, you know, they can leach uh, vessels. And then also, um, that's cold pressed jalapenos in there and kiwi and cucumber that we make in-house. I'm I'm not just saying this because you're right across from me. Um, (laughs) I'm smitten with this. It's so good, right? It's it's ridiculously good (laughs) because you get a little bit of that sting of jalapeno and kiwi is such a complex flavor but it has such brightness to it i mean you know everything i'm telling you right now but i'm I'm, i am completely smitten with this i love that one i put some tequila in there after (laughs) eight you're good because it's not all about always being healthy no i mean that is healthy yes that's true yeah (laughs) that is healthy you are the fastest growing brand in the category Mm -hmm. uh on you know probably going to sell two and a half million cases this year, if not more. Mm -hmm. You have over 100 employees. Where do you go from here? Well, continuing along that path. I mean, just to give you a sense, kombucha is one, a sense of reference. Kombucha is $1 billion right now in terms of a category nationwide. Less than 20% of people even know what it is. Uh, At least once a week, I talk to somebody that calls it kombuki. Now, contrast that with the carbonated soft drink industry that is $71 billion big, so 71 times the size of kombucha. 100% of people know what carbonated soft drinks are, and everybody calls it soda. There's just like a lot of white space. So for me, I want to take this all the way. I think the idea of having kombucha in everybody's fridge is like a really exciting one for me as a nutritionist, as just not just as a brand owner, but just the idea that like it could potentially replace what soda was 15 years ago to people Um, makes you feel good, naturally low in all the things you want it to be low in, naturally high in all the things you want it to be high in um, and tastes good. It's kind of awesome. And tastes good. Yeah. Let, let's use that for a second, because aside from the jalapeno kiwi cucumber, there's a ginger lemon, a pink lady apple, which I've had in delicious pomegranate. Uh, 
a cayenne cleanse, uh, blood orange carrot ginger, beet California grape. And then what is the original? It's just no added juice. So the way, so kombucha is made probably actually somewhat similar to vinegar. Actually, I'd love to talk to you about that. I don't know how the similarities, what the similarities are, but there's a primary fermentation for us where we basically combine those four ingredients and that sits for a period of time. Um, and then there's a secondary fermentation. That one's the anaerobic phase where we put the cap on the bottle and we let the carbonation essentially get captured within the bottle as the yeast eat the sugar. It's in that stage that we add the juice. So original just doesn't have any added juice at that stage. Uh, basically, it takes about four weeks to make and you know whatever residuals are left in the actual tea base are what get, what get the product bubbly. So that's why it takes the longest time. I mean, vinegar is very much in the same vein, and I actually started bottle conditioning my vinegars, and we can talk about that later. Cool. Uh, there are a couple other bottles that you have, a maca berry, a power greens, a reishi chocolate, a sweet thorn. Are those of a different collection? A little bit. They're all the same in that we add the flavor at the time of bottling. So everything goes through primary fermentation exactly the same way. Um, and it's only in secondary that they differ. The difference between those flavors, they're called our superfood kombucha flavors. Basically, um, because the product ferments with the flavor, with the juice, we're actually limited to what we can flavor it with. So, for example, turmeric. Awesome flavor. Love turmeric. I'm so excited about it. I take a bath in it. It doesn't ferment well in kombucha. Like, it doesn't, for whatever reason. Damn alkalines. Is it? Mm-hmm. I don't know the scientific reason, but we've tried and we've tried and it just doesn't. It has been difficult to make a turmeric vinegar. I figured out some aspects, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like you could use a powder, Mm -hmm. but if I'm going to use the real cold pressed turmeric, like I use ginger, it just doesn't get bubbly. So there's something anti, it somehow kills the yeast or doesn't Mm -hmm. make them active to make carbonation. I'm not sure what happens. So that's a great example of where the flavor might on paper sound really good and taste really good, but when you actually ferment it, it doesn't. So because we felt a little limited in our ability to expand, we thought, well, is cold pressed juice the only place to go? And we are like my fam, my sister is an acupuncturist. She always comes over with like interesting concoctions of like Chinese herbs and superfoods. And I was sort of like, well, we should be combining some of these with our kombucha. So we created a new line, which we call our superfood line. And that's where those fall in. So we're basically introducing always something from the known and something from the unknown into that line. So an example would be the chocolate reishi kombucha. So chocolate we all know and love. Love. Reishi is the unknown. Uh, Maybe not so unknown to many of you, but for most people it's unknown. And it's the superfood we've added. And so we're allowing ourselves a little bit of like leniency there. Like reishi mushrooms generally don't come cold pressed. Like you can't cold press reishi mushrooms usually. You have they come in powder form often, or they're dried, and you have to pulverize them. So, in that line, we allow ourselves to use things like extracts and powders, so that we can like access this kind of like rare um, superfood that might exist only in like Costa Rica or something like that. Well, what you were saying before about the way you thought about food and cooked, and even cooking with kombucha again informed the way you're culinary minded behind your product. So, first, I want to ask. What did you cook with kombucha? What are some of those recipes? So much like, basically anywhere you use, you would use a vinegar, you could replace a kombucha. I mean, it doesn't replace it. It changes the recipe. But like vinaigrettes are a great place to use kombucha, especially kombucha that's 
that you left on the shelf by accident, like a couple, <laughs> two, a couple, yeah. two, three, too many. I mean, days. I could see this on a like a fresh grilled fish, a ceviche. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So any place to mar- any any marinade that you would have used like an apple cider vinegar, it's a great replacement. Um, obviously, I mean, I don't know if this is called culinary, but um, craft cocktails. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. mixer for drinks. Um, but yeah, anything anything like that. Um, we would use it all the time to tenderize meat and fish. Yeah. You have this dogma of follow your gut and, you know, it's a duality of the microbial gut health, but also the way you run your business. And and you've been so great as a mentor for other upstarts. So what do you tell people? Do you tell them to follow their gut in, in building businesses? What did you do for your own business? Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of, you know, corporate America, Ideas can you instill in small businesses? Well, I feel like those are two different questions. But let me answer the first because I heard that one loud and clear. And yes, I do help upstarts. The reason I help them is that that first, those first two years of starting a business were really hard. There's so many um, forks in the road. There's so many detours. There's so many dead ends. And you're, you're, you're falling off the horse a thousand times a day and you're expected to get back on that horse a thousand times a day. And the faster you get on that horse, you get back on the horse, the, the better you become. So it's just like this almost like masochistic, like weird kind of two-year period, at least it was for us, of just like brutally <laughs> getting through this journey. And I felt really alone. And I remember telling myself at that time, if I ever get through this, I'm going to help other people out through it. Because what I really needed to hear from others at that time is, you got this. You're on the right track. If they had a question or two that needed clarity, I'd be able to answer it for them. But for the most part, it's just the high five, go get them. You're on the right track. Um, influence you need from someone that's been there and done that, not just like your mom. You know, go Dinah, like score that goal. My mom would like, you know, cheer me on as I like scored the soccer goal ball into the wrong goal, you know, not that doesn't count. I mean, like somebody who had been there and done that. So that's why I do that. And I offer several hours a week to these people to help them through it. And I don't know, I guess it just is like my payback. Um, but the other question you had is how, how is, how was my corporate America experience perhaps influencing my advice? Um, and there is a lot to speak of there. Like in my corporate America job, I went through like a pretty in-depth leadership program. I learned a lot about empowering and communicating and managing people. And like, there's no question that I based my entire leadership program on that, you know, because that was all I knew. So I also kind of looked at the structure of that huge company. It was a hundred thousand employees and saw sort of how it was laid out what I liked about that, what I didn't like about that, and use that information in structuring my own company. Like, I think when we look at a product on the shelf, we see the product, we love the product, or but we don't quite maybe realize what it takes to put that product on the shelf. It is a whole number, a whole number of people. It's a community. It's a culture of people. My company is a culture of people. And it's beyond sales. It's in marketing. It's in operations. We manufacture everything in-house. Like, I have to keep that together. And if that culture isn't sound uh, and isn't strong, eventually the wheels will come off and the product will fail. So uh, when you see a product start to grow and continue to like excel even as it expands, it's not just a testament that the product is great. I think it's also a testament that the company is being run well. Um, anyway, 
I don't know. I'm now pontificating. <laughs> well, I mean, not not to bring it back to you know that anthropomorphic sense of what a SCOBY is, but your, your company is kind of like a SCOBY. All the people yeah. that are you know work around you have to be healthy and exciting and you know excited and and work together to regeneratively make this product happen over and over. Um, yep. SCOBYs are a funny thing. Yeah. Because they can go sour as well. And I don't mean flavor-wise, but they can. Uh, they can go bad. What is the sign of a bad SCOBY if you were making kombucha at home? And how do you keep one healthy and thriving? So you got to start with a good SCOBY. That's the number one rule. I used to be, remember, I, I learned how to make kombucha back in graduate school where I was broke. And so I would get my SCOBYs from like Craigslist. And I learned then that the quality of the SCOBY is of integral importance to the flavor of your kombucha. So if you're having trouble making good kombucha at home, the first place to look is the SCOBY. And it's possible that you didn't get a good culture because a good culture should be able to produce really good kombucha and a really good baby. (laughs) (laughs) I I hesitated saying that, but a second SCOBY because in fermentation, it makes basically a second SCOBY. It's kind of, you know, called a baby, but it's not. Yeah, SCOBY 2. Let's call it SCOBY 2. So if you get a healthy SCOBY 2 from that first culture, then you're you're in a good spot because it means that that symbiotic sort of like balance of yeast and bacteria that's in that SCOBY is good enough to make good kombucha and a SCOBY number two. Great. Now, if it goes bad from there, my feeling is that it's probably because you didn't take care of it. So you either introduced too many yeasts or bacteria from the outside that messed up that balance. And you can do that through adding things like juice or raw fruit or raw vegetables that come with those yeasts because they were grown in the ground and have their own, um, their own flora. Um, or you didn't like feed it well. So you like put it in the fridge or you put it on the shelf without giving it sugar and tea while it was waiting. And so it became like weak other than that, if you keep the original good SCOBY healthy and you don't expose it too much to external flora, it should stay good for you for about 20, 15 to 20 cycles. So the way I know if a culture isn't good is number one is if it didn't make a SCOBY too. That's number one, you're out. Number two, over time, if it starts to get like the way we look at it, it's not so scientific for us even still. Um, if it's a little bit too like brown and because it gets stained by tea over time, it's like if it looks a little too brown to us, we put it aside. We, like may she rest in peace. She goes to compost. We we donate that compost to like community gardens in the city. So it's okay. She still has a life after that. But we do put it aside. We don't use it anymore. If it's a little bit too like broken up or like um, it's torn, we just have certain protocols and critical control points in the manufacturing facility to like identify when a scoby looks a little too tired we put her aside does that make sense yeah and for all of us that don't want to go through the process ourselves <laughs> we can just go to target or whole foods and get your bottle on the shelf although i do recommend making it it's pretty cool a little bit of both yeah the, the symbiosis yeah <laughs> thank you so much for being on the food scene everyone should go to healthaid.com that's h-e-a-l-t-h dash com. check out more about this wonderful kombucha and Dinah, thank you so much again for yes. bringing this product to market. I enjoyed it. You've thank been you. listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your 
host Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Music by Cookies and Vitor Engineering. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.